All right, we're going to be a little bit everywhere this morning. Uh, my, my task before me this morning is to summarize the entire Old Testament. So that should be a piece of cake. Um, we're going to be, uh, uh, I guess you could probably open up to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel is where we'll be to start with, and then we'll bounce around a little bit, uh, a little bit more. 1 and 2 Samuel is where we will get started. I drive a 2004 Toyota Forerunner, and let me just tell you, I love that thing. I have wanted a Forerunner since I was in high school. I don't know why, that's just always what I wanted, and uh, I was just never able to make it happen for a variety of reasons, but I always wanted one. When we got it a few years ago, it was probably... Um, it, it was probably a bit out of our price range, but not too bad. We figured out we could, we could, make, it, uh, we could make it stretch. But for, for us, we thought it was so nice. Uh, we got in for a test drive, and uh, when we got in for a test drive, it had this like full screen audio or like uh, radio system thing and GPS nav system. And when we, when we got in, it just kind of went, like the, the screen tilted just a little bit. And at that point, there was no chance that we were not going to buy that car. Uh, we thought that was the coolest thing that that thing had happened. So we had had like the old model Ford Explorer that had the, uh, the standard uh, kind of radio on it with the, 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 the old school like display and everything. And then this full digital thing came up and we were like, that is just too cool. Now it doesn't like make it drive or anything, but it, it sold it for us in a, a hurry. Uh, and we thought, this thing is pretty nice, we, we, we need to get this thing. And so we ended up buying it, and uh, we still love that car. We bought it, it had over 100,000 miles on it now. It's got like 225, we love it, we've uh, taken a lot of trips in it. But the thing that really sold it for us, now obviously we, we're, we're partial to Toyotas, and we're, it checked all these other boxes, but it was that nav system and that radio that sold it for us It said, this is the thing. You've never owned anything this nice. You need to get this thing. Um, but you know what? That nav system is totally useless because it's from 2004. And what we didn't realize at the time whenever we bought it is that the maps have not been updated since 2004. And so that thing that we thought was so cool and so slick was really not all that uh, helpful. It's so old at this point, you can't even update the maps even if you wanted to. Uh, I think we have tried to use that nav system one time. We tried to use it whenever we took a trip to Myrtle Beach. And so we thought, all right, we'll use this and we'll use our phones and we'll just kind of between the two, we'll get where we, uh, we need to go. And listen, there are a lot of roads in Myrtle Beach that were not there in 2004. Uh, but that map system does not know that. And so there's a few different times that we're driving and the map system says, keep going straight. And it's like, there's not a road there. I can't do that. Uh, but the signs tell me go this way. So I end up going this way on like a four-lane road or, you know, it's real nice, looks pretty new. Uh, but according to the maps, I'm in a swamp. That's what I'm driving through. And so, it should, and so it's telling me like, recalculate, go a different direction. You should not be here. You're about to die. All of those things. And we're trying to figure out how do we just make it to our hotel? That's really all we want to do. And at that point, you know, we're scrambling, trying to get our phones up, put in the address for our phones to get to the place. And my only real option was keep driving until I run into uh, Beachfront Avenue or the ocean, one of the two. And at that point, I'll know where I'm at. But other than that, I can't use these maps for anything. Uh, they're not useful for me at all. You see, maps are helpful for us because they will tell you where you're at. But it's a big problem if those maps are not accurate 
and they don't accurately reflect what is around you. If you look around and you say the map says one thing, but reality says another, then you're going to be in a pro- you're going to be in, in a mess, and it's going to be a problem for you. And the only way you're going to be able to figure your way out of that is just to kind of look around and hope you run into something that looks like it might be useful for you. That looks like it might be a landmark that can get you someplace, kind of a a navigation uh, marker. It's my conviction that this is how most of us live life. We have completely outdated maps. If not outdated, they were never drawn correctly in the first place. We are driving and, and the rest of the world seems to be going uh, one way and so we kind of go one way. Maps say go this way and we end up in a place where you know, we're, we're in the middle of a swamp according to the map that we're in and we're just kind of trying to make it. We're just hoping we can figure out our way around us. Maybe we can find our bearings if we look around at what else is going on around us and maybe we'll get lucky and something will point us in the right direction. But most of us spend our lives wandering in the darkness with obsolete maps that cannot help us find our way forward. My hope is that what we're doing here last week and over the next few weeks is that we kind of update our collective map, that we can see where we are in God's story. We can zoom out far enough. Remember last week I talked about seeing the, uh, the, at the planetarium, zooming out far enough to get our space in the, in the our place in the, in the universe and, and how helpful that was. That's what we're trying to do, zoom out far enough in our maps so that we're not so concerned with the individual things going on around us that are so disorienting, but instead we can properly see where we are in God's story. And then once we figure that out, we have a much better idea of where to go and how to go forward. Last week we looked at the early days of creation, the fall the subsequent exile that followed. My contention last week, and we'll see it play out this week, is that the rest of the Bible is in some way us trying to get back to the garden, us trying to get back to Eden to return from our exile, trying to get back to a place when we are in perfect fellowship with God and when the God who is ruling over us, the God who is uh, directing us, is not, it's not in a way that we are contrary to him, but we recognize that he is doing it for our good, that we joyfully accept the reign of God over our lives because we know that if we do that, if we joyfully accept that reign, then we too will share in the joy that God has for us. But that road trying to get back to exile, or get back from exile, is full of failure, frustration, and as we're going to see today, a whole lot of false hopes and confusion. So our story picks up right where we left off last week in Genesis 3 uh, and in the curse and promise that God gives whenever he curses the serpent. If you'll remember Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you will hurt him, but he will crush you. He will strike a mortal blow to you. God gives a curse, but he also gives a promise that we would be able to look to the offspring of the woman for our deliverance. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through, I'm not kidding when I tell you, walk through the entire Old Testament in about the next 35, 40 minutes, if we're lucky, and and get through there and see how that takes us right up to the events of Palm Sunday. How those two things, that thread from Genesis 3 all the way to Palm Sunday, how that thread is just right there woven all the way through. 
And hopefully whenever we do that, we'll be able to reorient our maps and know where we are in the story. Palm Sunday is really one of the the ways that God most clearly illustrates how he is telling this story. In the beginning of our journey, it is offspring. So just like in Genesis chapter 3, uh, 15, it talks about looking to the offspring of the woman. We, we move forward to Genesis chapter 15, and we have the same type of conversation that is happening. We fast forward to these chapters, and we have the conversation with Abraham, the one that we know so well, where God comes to Abraham, and he says, you have to trust me, but even in your old age, I am going to make you a father of many nations. I am going to make you a father of a great nation with many descendants, with, with, with offspring more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the grains of the sand. If you want to see my faithfulness, Abraham, I'm calling you now, but look to the sky and look to the sand. Count the sand and the stars, and there you will see your legacy and my faithfulness in your offspring. So it has echoes that Genesis 3 promise. Look to the offspring there. He tells Abraham, you look to your offspring too. And so if we follow the timeline, if we keep our eyes ahead, if we keep looking down the road, we'll see the promises of God come true. You fast forward though and you get through the rest of the book of Genesis. And while Abraham's offspring uh, does show evidence of God's faithfulness, the book of Genesis ends with this offspring in captivity in Egypt. Not exactly the hope that they or that we as we read along in the story would have been clinging to. You're saying, wait a minute, I thought that the offspring was supposed to, uh, was supposed to, 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 to bruise the, the serpent's uh, head, was supposed to hurt the serpent. I thought that, that, God, you were showing your faithfulness through this offspring, and yet this offspring is now in slavery in, in Egypt. And so you ask the question, as you just read along the story, just like the people of Israel would have been asking, is this the blessing I should have been waiting for all along? Is this it, God? Because this doesn't feel like blessing to me. This doesn't feel like hope to me. This is slavery. Is this really all that I was promised? Because if it is, maybe I'm out. Maybe I'm done here. This is what we get when we get to the end of the book of Genesis. Maybe God's promises aren't all that grand after all. Then Moses comes on the scene. He has a bit of a rough start, but he eventually gets all of Israel to follow him out of Egypt as the plagues come down on Pharaoh and on Egypt. This is the Exodus. This is what we learned about last night and reflected on last night as we went through the Seder together. And it looks like for a time, God's people are finally about to take hold of that promised blessing that they were given. But nothing seems to click like it should. Nothing quite seems to line up. It seems like every time the tumblers are starting to fall into place and everything's about to line up for God's deliverance to come, for this promised seed to show up, something goes askew. Something's not right. Israel does so well in these, in these you know, certain situations and then just as soon as you think, all right, they figured it out, they've got their act together, you realize they really don't have their act together at all. Moses takes too long. The food isn't all that good. They like freedom, but they wonder if it's really all that good since they're still out in the desert and they can't eat the stuff that they used to eat. They can't live 
uh, a, a good, comfortable life and a place that they can kind of kind of settle in. And they, they start to wonder, is this it? It's the same question again. Is this all you have for me, God? Is this all you have for us? Because this doesn't seem like much. I mean, we appreciate you getting us out of Egypt and all, but kind of Egypt wasn't so bad, maybe. Maybe that slavery we were in, maybe they were kind of taken care of us. Maybe it really wasn't so bad. And they're asking the same question. Is this it? Is this all that there is? So what do they do? They go back to what they knew. They don't worship God alone who has just delivered them, but they worship the idols and the gods that they had just left. They build a golden calf Things begin to spiral kind of out of control for them. It spirals for a while. They end up in this kind of pseudo-exile, so they're delivered from one exile of slavery, but before they can make it fully out of that exile into the promised land, they end up in another exile as they wander the desert for 40 years. Eventually, the people do make it to the promised land, but again, they're asking when they make it even to the promised land, is this it? Is this all there is? They can't understand why at every turn, their hope only turns to disappointment. Things are never quite what they had hoped for. Things aren't quite what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be. These big promises to Abraham haven't seemed to do what they had hoped. So they decide that they need to set things up like everyone else. They're like, all right, so we've done all this stuff. We're here in this place that we're supposed to be in. But this still doesn't seem right. Why does it seem like everybody else has got their act together and we don't? You know what? Maybe we should just be like them. Perhaps if we just have a little something like the rest of the people around us, then we'll get in good and we'll have it as good as they do. And this is how it works. This is the pattern that Israel will follow all throughout the Old Testament. And it's one that is repeated time and time again in Scripture. And it's one that is repeated time and time again in all of our own lives. We start looking around and we start to define success not in the ways that God defines it and says, if you'll do this, you will see my faithfulness. And instead we look around and we say, God, if you'll do all of this, I'll see your faithfulness. I'll know that you're faithful when you make me look as successful as all the other people around me. Israel says, I'm not going to define faithfulness by the way you define faithfulness, God. I'm going to define faithfulness by the way the rest of the world does. And so we're going to change the rules, God. If if I'm going to know your faithfulness, then I want you to make me like everybody else. Not not the, the plan you had. I've got a different plan, and that's faithfulness. That's your goodness. If you do that, I'll believe that you're good, God. This is what Israel does, and this is what we do. We define success. We define the goodness that God has for us, not by what his word teaches us, but by what our hearts crave around us. So we look all around us and we say, that guy seems to have it pretty good. I want what he's got. Oh, wait, that person over there, they're married and their marriage is great. I want that. That person over there, why do they have four kids and I can't seem to get pregnant? I want what they've got. That guy over there, his house is bigger than mine, but I know I'm smarter than him. Why can't I have a bigger house? 
that person over there, they did all the things wrong according to what you say, God, but they're loaded. They drive a really nice car. It's a new car. I want a new car. I want all of these things, God. If you'll give me these things, I'll believe that you're for me. I know you said that you're for me because of everything else that has happened and how you've forgiven me, but that's all nice and well. But I just want to know, are you really for me? Will you give me what everybody else around me seems to have? And we're constantly asking the question, is this it? Is this all you have for me, God? Why does everyone else seem to have it all and have it all together? I mean, that may be what a lot of you are asking. Not so much, God, I want the stuff everybody has. I just want my life to be together because it's a mess. Everybody else seems to have it together. Why can't I get it together? I'm trying, but you don't seem to be kind of greasing my path here. I'm, I'm pushing this boulder uphill. God, why don't you help me out just a little bit? All I want is for my life to be together. Because everybody else's life seems to be together. Why do they seem so at home in this world? And I seem so lost. Remember these people that we're living, that we're talking about here in the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel, they're living in light of what we read about last week in the beginning. They're trying to find their way home too. They are exiles on multiple levels, and they just want a place to call home. Now, remember what I'm saying. They're in the promised land here, but they still don't quite feel at home. They have what they've been promised on some level, and they still don't quite feel at home. They can't find it, and they look around, and they say, why does everyone else seem to feel at home? It's the same question we ask all the time. Why does everyone else seem like they're in the right place, but I feel like a fish out of water here? There's no bigger lie that Satan will tell you than that. The belief that everyone else is comfortable cruising through life and feeling great about everything. It is pervasive in our culture. Our Facebook and Instagram feeds are built to lie to us. The lives we see other people living deceive us. Sometimes it's intentional. They're trying to put on uh, a false front because they want you to think well of them. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes people just don't want all their mess out there in the world for everybody to see. And so they just kind of hide and tuck away. We hide it. We excuse it. We cover it. We dismiss it. We pretend that it's not there. We pretend that it's okay. Okay. We go into debt to buy things that will convince others or even convince ourselves. Maybe this is even the bigger problem. That we're not trying to convince everyone else that we're doing okay. We're trying to convince ourselves that we're doing okay. And we think if we have all of this stuff, if we have these things that seem to make it look like we have it all together, then really we do have it all together. And so we get this stuff because it makes us feel like maybe I'm not as big a loser as I feel like I am. Or we're just trying to convince others that you're not as big a loser as you think you are. This is the story of the people of Israel. It is our story. 
It's why for us here at Providence, this authentic, honest community of the church is vital to us. We cannot be a people who just slap on a fake smile and go through life, pretending that we have it all together. This is why we have front porch communities. This is why we have discipleship groups, to encourage you to be able to say, I don't have it all together. I'm living a lie. What you see on my Facebook feed, what you see on my Instagram feed, what you see whenever you see me at church on Sunday, what you see whenever it looks like my kids are listening to me, you don't see how terrible it is at home and how I yell at them and how it's a mess. My marriage is not nearly as great as it appears to be. They're about to take the car because I can't afford the car anymore. I just want to be honest with you guys. I don't have it all together. And then what you're going to figure out is somebody that's going to be like, you know what, I don't have it all together either. Let me tell you about how I've been lying too. Let me tell you about how I've been trying to convince myself that it's all together. And what you'll find is that we're all a mess. Maybe we're not all a mess in the same way, but we're all a mess. That's why it is so important. Israel's reality is that they were a mess. They knew they were a mess. They just didn't realize that everyone else was too. So what did they do? They decided they wanted to be just like them. So in 1 Samuel, we have the record of the people demanding a king to rule over them. Demanding that they get a king like all the other nations around them. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They said, no, 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 we want to have a king that would rule over us. They thought everyone else seemed to have it together and a king would be that thing that would make them kind of stand out on the world stage. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's read this story of how they ask for this king. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to the officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them, put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall all be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. He says, be careful what you wish for. It's not as great as you think it is. It's going to cost you more than you want to pay. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So after this warning saying, it's going to cost you more than you think you don't want this, they said, yes, we do. Bring it on. We want a king. They said, we want to be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. They didn't trust God to go out and fight their battles. They wanted a king to do it. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Samuel tried to warn them. God tried to warn them. But their minds were made up. So God said, give them what they want. 
which just as an aside, we could preach a whole sermon on this. Just because God gives you what you want doesn't mean that that is God's blessing. It may be his judgment. So they ask for a king, and they get a king. They get Saul. Saul was a man's man. He was the guy everybody wants to be. He was a leader. He was a soldier. He was a fighter. He was a warrior. He was the king that would make them the envy of all the other nations. So no longer would they say everyone else has it better. The problem is the promise of Saul never really lived up to its promise. He becomes king. He disobeys God. God removes him, installs another king. This time it's King David. And then when King David shows up and he gets made another promise from God. I want to read that promise because it's central to everything else that we're going to see in the rest of the Old Testament. Everything else from this point forward. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. So one more book over. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. It says, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. Home. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Home. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will, rise up, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be for him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Some people have said this is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. This is the covenant, this is the Davidic covenant. God comes and he says, David, here's what I'm going to do for you. You want to build a house for me? David was trying to build the, uh, the temple uh, for God. He says, you want to build a house for me? I don't need that. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to give you a place to call home. And we're told again, look to the offspring. Just like in Genesis 3, just like in Genesis 15 with Abraham, and again with David, we're told, look to the future, look to the offspring. Not just a son, but a son who would be a king and would have a kingdom. And there's a lot we could unpack here, but we don't have time for that. I just want to focus on that one thing. A son who would be a king and would have a kingdom. From David's line. It's a powerful promise. It's one that will carry us through the rest of the Old Testament, carry us right in to the New Testament. When David's sons hear this, they want to make sure that they are the ones that can fulfill this prophecy. I mean, you think about it, there's multiple sons of David. They hear that one of the sons of David will be a king, and they said, I'm going to make sure that it's me. 
And then they begin to scheme to make it happen. They have parties, they play politics, they conspire in a violent coup to overthrow their father. And this happens over and over. All these kind of palace politics of David's sons trying to take over David's throne, their own father. Before these plans could be set in place and fully acted out, David decides he's going to install Solomon as his king before his death. That way there will be no arguments about who the king is. Solomon is made king by David and he enters into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey as the trumpets blow and he's greeted by shouts of Hail King Solomon. It seems as though the prophecy has come true. Solomon is the one to fulfill it. Solomon starts out well and their hope is in David's son in Solomon. That he would establish this home that they long for so desperately. He builds the temple that his father David had wanted to build. But then we get to the end of the reign of Solomon and what should be a celebration of them being at home. And here's what we read about King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart from, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So as the reign of Solomon comes to the end, this promised heir that would establish this kingdom forever, we're left asking this question again. Is this it? Surely there is more. God, you set this up and this is how it ends for Solomon. Is this it? Is this all that God is doing here? Is this the grand fulfillment of this promise? Because it doesn't feel very grand. And the next 500 years of Israel's history is marked by the exact same thing. Terrible kings chasing after foreign gods and foreign women. Bad kings that turn from God. There are a few good ones mixed in there, but there's no like established pattern of goodness here. It's mainly bad kings that follow, each time wondering if this was the king to restore Israel. Each time a new king comes in there, is this the one that will, that will establish this kingdom, that will give us this place to make us feel like it's home, that will push away all of our enemies? Each time, the answer is a resounding, nope, this is not the guy. No, this is not the guy. This is just another failed king and another failed king and another failed king, and another failed king. Over and over and over we see this play out. The prophets warn, the kings ignore, and the long chain of failure continues. Eventually the nation of Israel splits to a southern and a northern kingdom until they are both eventually carried away by the Babylonians and then by the Assyrians into exile. And as they are carried away, the questions really begin to come at that point. Is this it? Is this it, God? We thought we were yours. We thought our kingdom would last forever. Now we have no king. We have no nation. We have no hope. And we have no home. Can you imagine the depth of their despair? 
Can you imagine what it must have felt like for them? They had been promised in Genesis 3. They had been promised in Genesis 15. They had been promised with the Davidic covenant. They had been promised they would be taken care of by the offspring of all of these different, these different promises. All of these different covenants. That the kingdom would last forever. That there would be no end to this throne. And now there's no nation. No kingdom. No throne. No home. I don't know that we could imagine that despair. So confused, so hurt, God had forgotten them. The promises to Eve, to Abraham, to David, worthless. But in the midst of all of this, God had been sending messages through his prophets all along. He had warned that if they did not turn from their sin and they continued to worship other gods, that this would happen. The prophets had time and time again warned them about their half-hearted manipulative worship and their willingness to chase after foreign wives and foreign gods. The prophets had also told them that in the midst of a dry and barren land, in the midst of exile, even as they are carried away in chains, God would not forget them. Much like the promise of Genesis 3, the circumstances are bad, but the promise holds true. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 3, it says this, This is Jeremiah talking to the exiles as they are being carried away. He himself being carried away with the exiles. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear me no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up... For David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So even as they're being carried away into exile, Jeremiah has this promise for God that says, I have not forgotten you. I will still rise up or raise up uh, a a branch from David. That promised king that I talked about all the way back when I talked to David, that's still coming. Don't give up hope. He's telling them, listen, God has not forgotten about you. You have not forgotten about the promise and are confused as to where God is going to come through, but he's not forgotten. You remember and he remembers. The promise is still in effect. It was not Solomon to fulfill that promise. It was not any of the other kings you put your hope in after that. Your vision vision was too short, your faithfulness too weak. But I, God, remember, I know, and my faithfulness is not too weak. It does not fade. I want to look at one more place in our Old Testament story before we move to the New Testament. Remember I said that we were on this kind of through line through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like that's our base timeline and then we kind of add into that. So we got, we got Ezra and Nehemiah. We took a break for Esther because that happens along the same timeline there. We looked at Haggai because Haggai's giving a prophecy to the people of Ezra, same time period. And I said that there's one other book. It's the book of Zechariah. 
The book of Zechariah, it's another prophetic book. It's confusing in a lot of places because it's, a, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic prophetic book, so there's a lot of figurative language in there, some of it that applies then, some of it that applies later. It's really hard to figure out some of what's going on in there. But if you'll turn with me to the book of Zechariah, this prophet was speaking to the exiles in Ezra. He was speaking to the, uh, in the book of Ezra as they, come, as they came back to Jerusalem. That's who he's talking to. And so I want you to imagine this. You're coming back from exile. You're coming back to Jerusalem. You're coming back to the place where the king should be enthroned. First order of business, you build the temple. That's what we, we saw in Ezra. Get that temple built. And then once the temple is built, what, what's your next question if you're coming back out of exile? Who's our king? Okay, we've got the temple. What about the other part? Who's our king? Now, they're still under the rule of the Assyrians here and the Persians. They're still under the rule of the Persians at this point. So they can't just establish another king because he would be seen as a rival. But they're asking, okay, Jeremiah said we would come back. Now we're back. He said that there would be a king rise up that was a righteous branch of David. Where is that king? Zechariah the, the prophet has an answer for them. He says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So those exiles would hear this. They would stop and they would say, Tell me more. This is who we're looking for. Tell me who this is. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. You know the promise about the kingdom. You know the promise about David's offspring. You know the promise that is there. And you wonder, is this the one that would bring us hope? Is this the one that would come in just like Solomon on the back of a donkey that is supposed to, and where Solomon failed, maybe this king would get it right. Maybe we learned our lesson in exile. The rest of this chapter goes on. It goes on and it promises them that they will not live in this kind of pseudo-exile, pseudo-captivity much longer or forever. God will deliver them. But then it just kind of ends. I mean, it says that the king is coming. It says you won't stay here forever. But then it just kind of ends. We have, we have the, the, the prophecies of Malachi that deal with worshiping other gods and the, the purity of their worship. And then it's just quiet. You have the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's like, okay, God, you promised that this was coming. You said, behold, your king is coming. We're looking. We don't see him anywhere. And they're left to ask this question again. Without a king, without a kingdom, without any glory of their nation, is this it? Is this all there is? God, have you forgotten again? Is this what we came back from exile for? We thought the return from exile would be a party, but here we sit in our dust with nothing more than a handful of prophecies to show for this and no king. Is this it? 
It's the question that has haunted all of Israel and all of us since the garden. Is this it? And do you know why it haunts us? Because we know this isn't it. Because we know there has to be more. Because our faith tells us that God has promised us more. So when we look around and we say, is this it? That question comes from deep within inside us because we know, no, this isn't it. There must be more. Life is not made to chase after these temporary things that do not satisfy. When we say, is this it? We know the answer before we ask the question, no, this isn't it. But if this isn't it, where are you at, God? Answer me here. I need to see you. You know, one of the things that's it's, it's cool about living here is like, it's always foggy around here in the mornings, which I think is kind of cool. And it, it's amazing when you're driving down for me from 92 into town here, like you see this heavy fog. And you think whenever you get into this fog, that you'll just be able to kind of sink your teeth into it. Like you'll be able to grab hold of it. And then you drive into the fog and it's like, ah, it's not really there. Like you don't see it quite the same. I mean, it's, 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 it's hazy, it's foggy around you, but you can't grab hold of the fog. It's not as tangible as you thought it was. This is kind of how this worked for, for Israel. It's like I can see this in front of me, but I can't get my arms around it. I don't understand. Why can't, I, why can't I grab hold of this? The more we want it, the more we try to wrap our arms around it, the more elusive it seems to be. And we're all asking, is this it? Because we know there must be more. And this is where the Bible really recalibrates the maps of the Old Testament and recalibrates our maps for us. It updates those outdated maps. It ties things together. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Now, all four Gospels record this story. Matthew writing specifically to a Jewish audience who would have known all the things that I just told you and known them all too well, very personally. This is how Matthew records this story. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The prophet Zechariah to the exiles who were wondering, Where is our king? Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So do you hear the story that Matthew is telling? Do you hear what he's saying? 
He's telling the exiles, your king is now here. You looked to Solomon. You looked to every king that came after him. That was not the king. You looked for the king in the days that you returned to Jerusalem, but he never showed up. There's been hundreds of years of silence. But I'm telling you now, Israel, listen, your king is here. And he ties all of this together and he says, understand where you are in the story now. Your king is here. The prophecy of hope to the exiles, the promised, the promised king that had been promised to David from David's line. Matthew leaves no doubt as to the meaning of this. He wants to make it crystal clear. He's saying, remember that promise that was made to the exiles, that was made to David, that was made to Abraham, that was made in Genesis chapter 3 when the curse was pronounced? Do you remember all of those promises? Here he is. This is the one you should be looking for. After all those false hopes, here's the guy. This is what history has been building to. This is what the prophets told us to look for. This is it. In Luke's gospel, the Pharisees are indignant. They tell Jesus to tell his disciples to quit worshiping and praising God in this way. And Jesus responds back to them. He says, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. Because history's been marching to this moment. You cannot stop what's happening. That's the message that he's given. You cannot stop what is happening here. They hail me as king because that is who I am. And the very rocks will cry it out if the people don't. Because I am the king. Now what we're going to see next week is that, that that road to kingship is not through power and conquest, but through suffering and through death. But here in this moment on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides on the back of that donkey announcing he is the hope. He is the promise. And then whenever we say, is this it? Yes, this is it. This finally is it. This is the one in whom our hopes are bound. This is the one in whom we look to whenever life, when we look around and we say, where are you, God? You look here. And Jesus says, now it's me. I am here. This is the promise of Palm Sunday. It is hope for exiles that desperately long for home. Do you remember the definition that I gave of exile last week, the short one? A memory of a place you've never been, but deeply long to return. As Jesus comes in on the back of that donkey, it's the memory of the king that they never had. It's the memory of the king that never fulfilled their job. Now Jesus comes and they say, this is it. And Jesus says, these guys get it right. And even if they didn't, the rocks would cry out because this is it. And so this is our task this morning, to cry out along with the disciples, along with those that laid their cloaks on the ground, along the, with those that, that put the palm branches down, to cry out and to say, you are it, you are our hope, and we are right to put our hope there. Anywhere else, we will follow this long string of dashed hopes and wondering where God is. So long as our hope is in Jesus, and that is where we look, and that is where we go. Jesus says, this is right. And I can bear up under the burdens of that hope because I am the one that you should have been looking for. Will you pray with me?
Father, this morning, I pray that you will open our eyes to all the times that we look around and we say, is this it? Is this all? Is this everything? Will you open our eyes to it to see that the answer is a resounding, no, this is not all. This is not it. But I pray on this Palm Sunday that we would not be counted amongst the Pharisees who say, stop praising this man. But instead, we would be counted among the disciples and even the rocks that say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.